0: with the Sideshow Network app for iPhone and iPad.
1: So, you're thinking about starting a new website? Maybe you have a new small business idea and want to tell someone or sell something online. Maybe you want to show off your photography, or maybe you want to start that new podcast. Ah, huh? <laughs> great idea. GoDaddy is offering one new or transfer.com for just $1.99 for the first
2: year. That's impossible. They're always 99 nine ninety
1: nine, or twelve they are ninety nine, but right now GoDaddy's offering one new or transfer .com for just $1.99 for the first year. On the
2: actual internet, or is this some BS sub-internet?
1: No, no, no. this is GoDaddy.com. Right. We all use GoDaddy.com. Everything I have is on GoDaddy.com. I know. And each new .com comes with a free instant page website and a built-in photo album, so what are you waiting for? I don't Get your own website started today.
2: I think it sounds like a scam. It can't possibly be GoDaddy's true. GoDaddy's
1: not a scam. They have... Uh, uh, that hot check Danica Patrick for mm-hmm. their stuff so it's not a scam. Plus I use it for everything. It better not be a scam. <laughs> go to godaddy.com and enter the code fork at the checkout or click on the GoDaddy banner on our website and you're all set to go.
2: Fork you if you don't take advantage <laughs> of this incredible GoDaddy deal.
1: I'm gonna take advantage of it.
3: Space the final frontier these are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. To explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man
2: has gone before. Welcome to another edition of A Fork on the Road Show. I'm travel guru Mark DiCarlo and to my left is the lovely and talented traveling diva Yenny Alvarez.
4: Hello.
2: We have a really special show for you today. It's all about space. Spot the entire show. It's about space week. No one does it better than on That's right. Good. I'm glad you're not to
1: Blackboard because I wouldn't
2: make any <laughs> You do have the pointy ears. <laughs> Great show for you this week. We're going to tell you how this year, 2014, yeah. commercial tourism in space is going to inaugurate with Virgin Galactic. We have the details on that. We're also going to talk to Professor Sarah Sager from MIT. She is at the forefront of hunting for Earth like planets. In our galaxy.
1: Exoplanets.
2: Exoplanets. At some point in the future, planets that humanity may actually be visiting. Talk about travel.
1: But it's not going to be in our lifetime, so...
2: So what? You know what? Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. That was before us. Yet we are still reaping the rewards for that. Sometimes you got to lay down the bricks so that some other mule can walk down the street.
1: (laughs) I hope those alien mules can come visit us.
2: So it's all about... Space travel today on A Fork on the Road. Thanks for joining us again. As always, we appreciate you listening. Um, you can, if you've missed a show in the past, you can visit us at our website.
1: A fork on the road show dot com. And you can find us on Twitter at Mark DeCarlo and at Traveling Diva. And uh, take a look at our sponsors and our deals from Tours for Mobile, GoDaddy and Fairbus.
2: All that stuff is on our website. You can also get a copy of my book, A Fork on the Road, Mm -hmm. which is all about road tripping and finding great food all over America. But I have nothing about space. No. So it's space time. Obviously, anytime you're talking about space, you're talking tons and tons of money. So we wanted to start with something that's uh, relatively affordable and right in our own backyard, especially if you live in Huntsville, Alabama. You've heard about it. Space camp. It's not just for kids anymore. Adults can now actually go to space camp.
1: You know, you either ship your kids off to a space camp or you go yourself for a weekend to get away from them.
2: I would like to go. It's a two-day trip. It's only a couple hundred bucks. And it's they like pu- 550 bucks. They put you through all the astronaut training. You get to go, um, you build a rocket, you go through all the simulators, a lot of the same simulators that the astronauts themselves use. And if you're a space groupie, I think we both are, would you qualify? Would you say that you're a space groupie?
1: Absolutely. But uh, when it comes to space camp, I don't know about that. I mean, we already, we have all these... Um, we have the internet; we can find out everything. But it's about not the it. same as
2: being in the suit and being jostled around. And I don't floating. want to be jostled.
1: Well, I want to be comfortable. There's a lot of jostling in I'll space. Wait, I'll wait for Virgin America. Maybe next year the prices will be better.
2: Ask anybody. There's tons v- of jostling Atlantic. in space. Um, so you can do that. You can uh, send yourself or your kids off to space camp. That's pretty much it. Uh, we found a really send
1: your kids and go to a spa. No, that's my take that's on it. It's not very
2: spacey. Um, Well,
1: wait for Virgin Galactic. I'm sure that's more comfortable.
2: Well, according to what we've been hearing and reading, it is, and it's right around the corner. People that have been following commercial space travel know that as of today, February 2014, there are no commercial, regularly scheduled space flights happening anywhere in the world, but they're right around the corner. Uh, Richard Branson and his company, Virgin Galactic, have built a space center, Space Center America, in New Mexico, and from there, they are going to start launching regular tourism commercial flights into space this year. They've that been is testing so and planning. They've been doing uh, uh, test flights yeah. over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've been following the X Prize, people designing different types of commercial space vehicles, it's it's all kind of bubbling because a lot of the government support for space, stupidly, has been pulled because everyone's tightening their belts. So the private sector, it seems like, has stepped in and is developing ways for regular, well, not regular, rich people to go- For
1: now. I mean, their the, the prices are pretty high up there, but eventually it'll come down to a, a place where you know everybody can afford it. Well, not- you know.
2: It's the rule of big screen TVs. When big screen TVs first came out, it was $5,000 for a 42-inch screen. Now you can get a 70-inch screen for $1,000. So- Everyone has to take a first step, and this is yet another giant leap for mankind. It used to be science fiction, but now it is science fact. Today we're talking to Stephen Attenborough from Virgin Galactic, the people who are bringing space travel to regular everyday Joes like us. Welcome to A Fork on the Road, Stephen.
5: Thank you very much. How are you? Uh, we're very
2: good.
1: We're very excited to talk to you. We're very to talk to you.
2: Well, thank you. Our whole episode today is all about space travel, because I think it's, uh, well, it's the final frontier, if you believe, uh, William Shatner. If you could give us a brief um, uh, background of how Virgin Galactic got started and how we've gotten to where we are today, and then we'll move forward. Were you involved in the Space X Prize at all?
5: Uh, well, I was, uh, I, I was was around for it. I mean, Virgin Galactic um, wasn't formally involved in the X Prize uh, until right at right at the end, but it was watching it very carefully because I think for a long time um, our founder, uh, Richard Branson, had wanted to do something in that area, uh, had wanted to go to space himself and was getting fed up waiting for somebody else to take him, so he decided he'd better do it, uh, do it himself. And uh, I think the XPRIZE struck us as a way of potentially finding some some good technology, some good prototype technology that would have the right attributes uh... for commercialization and that particularly was going to be for sort the of building something that would be safe enough uh... to take people on regular trips to space uh, and also um... would be affordable you know something that would enable us to be a successful commercial uh... venture but also uh... at least longer term enable you know hopefully thousands of people to take the trip so the X Prize was very important because it provided a little a little prototype spaceship called spaceship one that won that prize and uh... Virgin came along, uh, had a look at that before it won the prize, uh, decided it was a fantastic design, fit for purpose, very elegant, um, and uh, we sponsored the last flight, and uh, we also came to an agreement with the the owner, and the, uh, or at least the designer, and the funder of that project that if they were successful in winning the prize, uh, we would take things to the next step and uh, fund the development of a, of a commercial vehicle, and that's basically what we've done. That commercial vehicle uh, is... Uh, is now uh, built, has been for some time, it's flying on a very regular basis in an exhaustive test flight program, um, and uh, we are getting very close uh, to the day uh, where we'll be able to open the world's first commercial space line and take uh, take people to space. That's
2: fantastic. Well, it's about time. People, I've read in the past that the computing power that was on the Apollo missions was less than in, in a regular calculator today, let alone your cell phone. So certainly technology has yeah. advanced to the point. Where we can do it? Why do you think it's taken? I mean, the the last Apollo astronaut left the moon in 1974. That's that's yeah, I know. Forty years ago. What, yeah. what do you think took so long?
5: Well, I mean, the first thing is that getting to space and back, and getting people to space and back, particularly, is not is not easy. In fact, it's it's very hard. And uh, uh, and uh, the area, you know, of, of human space travel has been entirely dominated by by governments. Um, and in some ways, that's not surprising, um, you know, sure. because of the risks and because of the, the, the money involved. But you're you're right, you know. I mean, I think uh, if you look at the way technology has has changed since 1974, you know, let alone 1964, uh, you know, it's it's, uh, you know, it's just just about every area of technology has just moved on in uh, in a way which is is transformational, and you know, would have been unimaginable in uh, at, at, at the start. Um, and for for whatever reason, um, space. Uh, space vehicles generally haven't. They're still pretty similar to the way uh, you know, that they were right at the, the start of uh, space exploration. So, um, you know, and uh, whatever the reason for that is, you know, it's about time it changed. And uh, I think, you know, uh, the private sector often takes, you know, uh, some of the the great sort of work the governments and uh, taxpayers are paid for uh, originally and then sort of brings a little bit of the foolish thinking that Steve Jobs would talk about and, uh, you know, comes up with something really elegant and uh, and takes things on to the next stage. So I think we're at the start of the the second space age. It's going to be a space age which is uh, much more dominated by the private sector than uh, the the first space space age and uh, hopefully we'll see some pretty rapid innovation um, to, uh, to to bring um, human spaceflight in particular right into the 21st century.
2: Oh, I hope so, and I love that it's Richard Branson. He seems like just the prototypical swashbuckling Brit. <laughs> do, do you have to go to the government to get permission to do these kind of flights, or is it just you, you do it if you can do it, you can do it?
5: Um, there's there's a there is a regulatory framework which is really important, I think. Um, although it's a regulatory framework which the U.S. government put in place. To make sure that you know that things were done sensibly, but also to to enable a new industry. So, actually, uh, although yeah, you know, we may be led by a great British entrepreneur, a squash scotch buckling yeah. entrepreneur, as you say, <laughs> and you know, uh, the US is actually a very good place to start this this, this business because of the regulatory environment. And uh, so we we know. We know the uh, the regulatory regime under which we're going to be flying. Uh, you know, we know who regulates us. It's the FAA, um, in much the same way, or the same organisation that uh, that um, uh, regulates commercial flight, although it's a slightly different environment. Um, and uh, and so it means that um, you know, I think when people are booking with us, they are they they know that. Um, uh we uh, are under a duty and obligation to to, to you know to act sensibly and we have to have a license in, in, in order to operate. And I think that's that's pretty important because um you know this this is different from commercial aviation, but we hope it's the start of a of a new industry which is going to be as important and as transformational. And if we're going to, if we're gonna achieve that then clearly uh, you know, there need to be some rules in place. Uh, sure, you don't want a fly-by-night sure
2: operation that. taking people. In the no, space. we
5: don't, and we, we would we you know at, at Virgin, we, as you probably know, we run uh, we run airlines, and, uh, and in the UK we run trains as well. We're a big transport operator, so you know we I think we we understand that culture of safety that needs to exist from day one. We set the barrier really you know sort of the hurdles really high in that respect.
1: And you also um, set the boundaries. But, for, uh, yeah, y- in, in you, you also set the bar for comfort and bringing back that glamour that uh, flying used to have because to tell you that tr- I love Virgin America it's comfortable I love the atmosphere lighting I love flying Virgin America now I'm wondering what the craft for Virgin Galactic is going to be like is it yep. does it look like a plane does it feel like a rocket um, I mean is it comfortable cuz comfort is a big thing for me and what is the turnaround time cuz I need to know I'm going to I'm going to be out there and look fabulous for that time and then come back refreshed
5: well, the first thing I would suggest that any, anybody does is have a have a, a quick look on the, the website because uh, it will it will help to uh, understand what I'm saying. But the um, uh, we, we have a, it's a winged vehicle. But in fact, rather than just having one vehicle, the system consists of two because we launch our spaceship. Uh, that our customers will be flying to space on, we launch that in the air rather than the ground. Uh, we do that for safety reasons; it's much safer uh, launching the vehicle at sort of high in the uh, 50,000 feet high in the atmosphere than it is like sort of igniting up on the ground level. And so we have a fantastic aircraft we call White Knight Two, uh, which is the largest all-carbon composite aviation vehicle ever built. It's a it's a it's a, a catamaran design, twin fuselage. And then between the two fuselages the spaceship, uh, which is attached and takes off from the runway. And the carrier aircraft hauls the spaceship up to about 50,000 feet. So uh, that's the first part of your ride. Um, and uh, there are six, just six people inside, so a bit smaller than a Virgin America uh, flight or plane. Uh, uh, so six passengers, two pilots, eight uh, in, in total. Um, that is one heck seats, of a party. That's what I
1: want for my next birthday party. <laughs>
5: Three uh, three, 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 uh, seats down each side. Uh, Everybody gets a big window, of course. And um, uh, at 50,000 feet, you're released from the carrier aircraft. So the spaceship falls away into a glide. It's got wings. And then the two pilots at the the front end, uh, if everybody is set to go, um, push the button and there's a, a rocket motor behind the passengers which lights up uh, and you're suddenly on an extremely exciting ride. So again, a little bit unlike uh, Virgin America and the other aircraft, you're, you're going to be accelerating at sort of three and a half g's, so you'll be weighing three and a half times the amount you, you normally do. Um, and uh, you'll be pitching straight upwards, so a vertical climb, um, nice. and accelerating up to almost four times the speed of sound. <laughs> uh, so, as you're, as you're hurtling away from the Earth's um, surface, you'll see outside the windows that the sky will gradually turn from blue through to purple and then to black as you escape the world, so uh, the Earth's atmosphere.
4: Wow. And just
5: once you've got used to that incredible ride, the, uh, the acceleration, the noise, the vibration, uh, the pilots will turn the rocket motor off. And you'll be in the silence of space. And uh, not only will you be in the silence of space, but you'll also weigh nothing at all. Uh, And so uh, your seat restraints will come away, and you'll float gently out of your seat uh, and uh, be in that magical environment of zero gravity. So no up, no down. You can do the somersaults. You can have a a lot of fun. But I think what people will want to do quite quickly is to gently (laughs) float up to one of the many big windows on the spaceship, and from there... In the blackness of space, they'll be able to look down at the beautiful earth beneath them. And that, I think, is the uh, the defining moment for this experience. Well, and that and someone's going to
2: gonna the... want to join the 10-mile high club. You know that.
5: That's
2: a
1: supersonic mile club. <laughs> <laughs> how yeah, so, yeah, how so long, long is, are it's, you it's,
5: weightless? It's the 62-mile club, actually. So 62 62-mile <laughs> <mile> club. <laughs> And we've we've had we've had a, we've had a few inquiries for that, but we you know you'd have to hire the whole the whole spaceship for that one, I think. Um, but uh, so you you the, the whole trip is about two to two and a half hours long uh, from start to finish. You get several minutes of weightlessness, um, and the whole astronaut experience. So you know it's a rocket ride, it's the zero gravity, freedom to float around the cabin, fantastic views of the Earth, and of course your astronaut wings when you return back oh, to the spaceport. I um, would love Spaceport that. is built. Down in New Mexico, um, so we're, uh, you know, we're we're pretty pretty much ready to go.
2: So you're at, currently you're flying test flights, all the time now.
5: Yeah. So you've got your, well, you've got your test right, you've Yes, got I mean, absolutely. I mean, we've you know it's a progressive test flight program, so we we uh, we gradually build up the flight profile, to the to the extend the flight envelope, um, and we've now had three sort of full supersonic. Uh, everything working flights, which is the final stage of this this program. So we'll be uh, in the next few months. If you keep a keep a, a watch out for the news and the website, you'll see that we'll be burning the rocket motor for longer each flight. And, uh, and I think in maybe sort of three or four months' time, we'll we'll touch space for the first time in a, a full a full flight. Um, we then move everybody from Mojave in California down to New Mexico, where the Spaceport is, Spaceport America. Uh, We'll need that final license from the FAA, um, do a few more flights. And then the inaugural commercial flight, so the start of the space line, if you like, will be Richard Branson and his two children, Sam and Holly. And then we'll start uh, flying some of the 700 people from around the world who have paid... Uh, paid up in full, uh, in advance, in order to to have their ex- this 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 fantastic experience.
2: And what does a ticket cost? Stephen?
1: Oh, 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 hold on to the your. The
5: uh, yeah, yeah. Hold on to this one. So it's, uh, the ticket the ticket price is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars at the moment. Which okay, um, that's a lot of money.
2: But if you're if you're a wealthy person, I, I this would, is an experience yep, you I would you drop get that else. in a second to go into space
5: well we've we've certainly had a lot of, of people who are fortunate enough to be in that position um you know come come, come forward and very enthusiastic at about at
4: least life. 700
5: I think, of them at least 700 of them and i think i think the thing is that this is unlike Unlike most other sort of purchases. And I and, and I think most of those people, perhaps all of them, recognize that, you know, if you're going to start a new industry, which is an important industry, we need better access to space, for all sorts of things. And if you're going to do that, like the commercial aviation industry, you know, those, those first passengers are extremely important. They're pioneers and they're enablers. So um, they get a great ride, but they're also uh, people that I hope will go down in history as being uh, those that um, enabled a new industry.
2: And how often can you f- – I mean, is this like – uh, with, within a year or so, is this going to be like where you could fly a couple times a day, or you fly and then you have to recondition the the machine for a couple yeah. of weeks?
5: So you know, and safety. If I haven't said it already, I should have done. And safety is the north star of this project. And I, I did say it was it was hard. Uh, and uh, you don't want to rush anything with this. so No, because one, um, one
2: accident
5: the side, ruins the industry. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and so it's ex- exactly right. And so we'll be giving the operation down in New Mexico plenty of time to turn the vehicles around. We'll be wanting to survey the, the vehicles thoroughly after each flight. We want to give our, each crew each um, plenty of time to train and prepare for that flight. So I think by space standards, we'll be flying with incredible regularity, um, but not quite Virgin America regularity right at the start. So I think you'll see uh, the beginning of commercial operations later this year. Um, uh, you know, the flights happening perhaps uh, you know a couple of times a month, and then gradually increasing. Um, and uh, we, we would hope to see daily flights eventually. And we're, we're also building a fleet of these spaceships. So we'll start with just one, but we'll be building um, building a fleet of five spaceships. Um, so obviously the, the regularity of, of flights wow. will increase. So by uh, the end of
2: 2014, the, uh, you're going to be flying regular flights. Into space,
5: we expect that to be the case. You know, and I would the caveat with this is that you know this is we're doing something for the first time. We're led by safety. Um, we're sure. not quite through the space of the uh, the test flight program, but I think we can see a clear pathway now to that to that, that to that time frame. So, uh, yeah, all 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 doing well. We should see Richard and his kids um, becoming astronauts at the end of this year, and then some regular flights starting with our paying passengers.
2: Wow, that's amazing. My my grandfather was born in 1900, and yep. before he died in 1990, he flew across the country in a in a jet in three hours. You know, before when he was born, the Wright brothers hadn't even flown yet. So in the space of just one lifetime, we went from nothing to this.
5: Where are yeah, well, we going to be a from lifetime not, from not, today? <laughs> well, you know that's. That's that's what we're hoping. But that's what we're, we're really trying to keep 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 that pace of, of, of change and innovation going. And I think for those of us, I include myself in this group, just about that were around in the 1960s, and particularly in this country, you know, in the United States. But. Uh, I mean, it was an age of such hope and inspiration um, and, you know, anything was possible. And I think what was achieved during that decade in terms of space exploration really transformed a whole generation. And a lot of those people, you know, were the first to, uh, you know, to rush towards Virgin Galactic in order to buy a ticket because I think they had been waiting for this opportunity throughout their lives. They'd been disappointed that they hadn't been given the opportunity. And when they they saw something that looked credible and real and tangible, then they wanted to be a part of it, which is fantastic
2: yeah it's 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 very very inspiring and uh we wish you the best of luck with it on a personal note you a star trek guy or you a star wars guy
5: <laughs> i'm probably more star trek than star Woo-hoo! wars you know? That's right. <laughs> but i like them both so i don't want to alienate anybody of course not.
2: <laughs> well Stephen, thank you so much for spending time with us and good luck uh
5: godspeed to virgin galactic
2: as they uh, reach up and touch the heavens
5: Thank you. Hope to see you on board one day soon.
2: We hope so, too. The minute we win the lottery, we will get <laughs> our first purchase. <laughs> if I had the money,
5: I would do it. I,
2: I, I, yeah, I can't th- think of that's anything more exciting. If you
1: had the money, you would do it. You would have to have a few million dollars in the bank in order to...
2: True. <laughs> but you know what? I bet you 30 years from now, it'll be like a first-class ticket to Europe when more people are in the mm. business, when they're more... I think, I think it's fantastic. Just a, a tribute to ingenuity and the cleverness of the human spirit, that they can actually pull this off and make it happen. So we wish them the best of luck with all their safety training and their test flights. And uh, if they ever want to send a couple of podcasters into space, they got our number. Now, that's the short term of space travel. There's a long view, too. Our next guest is a recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant, which means... And
1: she's going to blow your mind. She's
2: very, very smart, obviously, because they don't give those out to idiots. And she's also very clever and has been at the forefront of the search for exoplanets in our galaxy for years. Uh, Professor Sarah Sager works at MIT, where she lectures on finding Earth-like planets all over the universe. How we do it.
1: Uh, Why we do it.
2: And when we may be able to actually go there ourselves. We're very excited to have her on the show today. Since the dawn of time, man has looked up into the sky and pondered the same questions. Why are we here? Where the hell are we? And is there anybody else out there like us? Our next guest is working on these very questions right now at MIT as a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant, which means she's very, very smart. I know.
1: sounds so serious. Right.
2: Uh, and a member of NASA's Exoplanet Direct Imaging Mission Comsets program. She just might be the first person in human history who can answer those ancient questions. Uh, Professor Sarah Seeger, welcome to A Fork on the Road.
0: Hi, Sarah. Hi, it's great to be here today. Um,
2: so we wanted to, we, we're big fans of space, and uh, <laughs> obviously, perhaps hundreds of years from now, um, people will be going into space uh, often, But as of right now, we don't know where they're going to be going, right? Uh, If you could, before we start talking about what you're doing, can you take us through a really, really, really brief history of man's knowledge of the planets outside of Earth? You know, starting with, I know Copernicus got in trouble with the Catholic Church because he said this Earth wasn't the center of the universe.
0: Right, right. Well, that's what we like to go back to when we try to reference our study of exoplanets because it's all about breaking paradigms. The things we thought were normal—they're no longer normal. Right. And we're talking about Copernicus, who in the 1600s actually decided that you know how well you know how we all feel like we're this—I don't know about you, but we all feel like we're the center of the universe. I am actually. <laughs> yeah, Mark feels like that every day. <laughs> okay. Well, the thing is that people really did believe that Earth was the center of the universe, and that the Sun went around Earth, and that the planets—Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn—and went around
2: earth and the church supported that because it glorified the human being which in turn glorified God and just put more money in their pocket
0: I mean I can't really speak to religion but it was basically the doctrine and so Copernicus said no actually that's not how it is it makes more sense it's a simpler model if everything goes around the sun that is the planets go around the sun and uh, it should be that way and so that was a really big problem because he really just had a theoretical concept he had real data but, you know, what would you believe? The thing that's been always believed or this new concept that was radical and, and frightening? And then we came to Galileo, who actually got uh, was one of the first people to make a telescope. And he actually found evidence that supported Copernicus's theory. Really, two main things stand out to me. And one is he spotted the moons of Jupiter. Well, Jupiter had things going around it. And that was um, a little odd, actually. Uh-huh. He also saw He also saw the phases of Venus, which it won't make sense because we'd have to sort of draw it on the blackboard and think really hard. But if the fact that Venus went through phases really means that Venus is going around the sun, not around Earth. It like goes The moon goes yeah. around the
2: Earth. That's why there's phases in the moon, right?
0: Yeah, well, the moon is also it's going around the Earth, but it's having different illumination phases based on where the sun is. And mm-hmm. so anyway, they ended up getting data and puzzling out. And eventually, um, the thing that really nailed it was that Halley's Comet – I know this sounds like we're all over the map here, but eventually um, Halley's Comet was predicted by Halley. A comet that came by it was predicted to come by again like 75 years later. And 75 years later, that comet did come back. It came back. And so the fact that there was this predictive power and things were going around the sun and we could make measurements and show that things would return and we understood how things behaved, it took really hundreds of years for people to accept that theory finally.
2: Right. And and, and then Einstein comes along in the 1905 and 1904 with the general relativity, which kind of adds fuel to that fire. It seems like with every major scientific advancement, Man has moved further and further away from the 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 center of the universe, and becoming a, a more and more bit player in in the world.
0: Well, eventually, what astronomers realized is that our star, our sun, is a star, and all the stars in the sky are just like our sun. They're just far away, so they look different, mm-hmm. smaller, and that you know what, our sun is one of a hundred billion stars in a galaxy, a Milky Way ga- our Milky Way galaxy, we call it. And later on we realized that our Milky Way galaxy is not alone there are lots of other galaxies out there so all of a sudden it's like mind-blowing <laughs> that we're not only not the center but we're one star rotating around a galaxy and our galaxy is just one galaxy out of probably hundreds of billions of galaxies so now all of a sudden we're like nothing
2: right so, <laughs> so basically to sum it up it's basically what I've been hearing my whole life it's yeah. not all about you <laughs> we are we're, we're a, a speck in this giant Puzzle right. of the universe, and now for really for the first time in human history, we're starting to get the tools to,
1: to... actually be able to see beyond the stars and see the, the shapes and see little shadows that hint to the fact that there's planets out there. That, um, well, why don't you explain it? Why don't you explain right. your um, starshade?
2: Well, well but... no, let's hold on, let's back up for a second. Yeah, awesome. I, I, I went to college in the 80s and I took uh, astronomy classes then. And things have completely changed even since then, right?
0: Well, a lot of things has changed. And the biggest change that I'm here to talk about is exoplanets, planets that go around stars other than the sun. And as I said already, every star in the sky is a sun. And if our sun has planets, surely these other stars should have planets also. And they do. And it's only been in the last 20 years or so that astronomers have been able to find those planets because, you know... We do still feel like we're the center, right? I mean, that's our Earth, and Earth seems big, right? Like, if you ever try to go from where you guys live to New York, or you try to go to London, it seems far, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. Earth seems big. But really, we're just a tiny speck. And finding a planet next to a big, massive, bright star has always been a problem for us. So that's why technology was only good enough in the last 20 years to find planets. And now we have found thousands of planets, planet candidates, and we also have found, statistically speaking, that every star in our Milky Way galaxy should have at least one planet, Wow. Wow. So basically now we have evidence that planets are just everywhere. And it may not be surprising, right? Like if you think logically, well, we have planets around our sun and we see astronomers see evidence that all suns, all stars are born with a lot of leftover junk in a disk and it mm-hmm. ends up forming mm-hmm. planets. So now but we just have real evidence now that planets are everywhere and small planets are very common. So so
2: people for a while maybe have been thinking that because like you said, it makes logical sense. But just in the last 20 years, we've developed the technology and the minds to actually go out and find the pictures, right? And, and this is what your work is about. This is what exoplanets are. So explain but, to me how you can find a tiny little planet orbiting a star hundreds of thousands of light years away from Earth. Are you seeing it? Are you detecting radio waves? Are you a psychic? Are you talking to uh, the ghost of Einstein? How how are you getting this data?
0: Well, I first want to say to explain this in detail, one one of you two would have to take my class. I'm I'm teaching a class now, so it really takes like a whole semester to explain all this stuff. But I can tell you, I wish it was because we were getting a signal. I wish it was because the aliens on the other planet were telling us they were there. Mm-hmm. I wish it was. I that. hope that happens in my lifetime. Uh, yeah, that we can get to that. The odds of that happening later, um, we'll she be more positive theory. now. So. But for now, um, we have many ways, and I'll just describe two of them. Okay. One is um, we call it the wobble method for short, or it has a more technical term, the radial velocity method. And what that's about is that as a planet goes around the star, believe it or not. It's really that the planet and star, they're really orbiting a common center of mass. But to make it easier, it's a wrong description. To make it sound easier, people always say the planet is tugging on the star. The planet's orbiting the star. and Because the planet's there, the star is also moving. And astronomers can measure that motion of the star. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny wobble. The planet is causing a wobble as it goes around the star. It's so tiny. You know what? It's like walking speed, like you walking down the hall or running down the hall. Mm -hmm. That's how much the star is moving, a tiny, tiny, tiny amount for a big, huge object. And astronomers can measure that far away.
4: How? Wow.
0: Yeah, how? Um, well, what they do is they take the light of – let me think about it. So we, um, let me think for a second. got to dumb it down for us, please. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of what, what level of detail to go into here. But essentially, they're measuring um, the light of the star. And they have um, – each star has what we would call a fingerprint, a set of fingerprints that are unique a set of fingerprints, um, we call it a, I'm going to have to, I have to actually take a couple minutes cause it's a cool thing. And I think you're going to, going to like it okay. you know, okay. um, when you see a rainbow in the sky, yeah. I know you see rainbows, a rainbow is actually light from our sun uh, split up into different colors by raindrops. And essentially we're looking at um, colors of a star. We're splitting it up, not with a raindrop, but with the special kind of prism or something else inside an instrument in a telescope. We're splitting that light up to look at the spectrum which is related to like a rainbow splitting the light up and looking to see what parts of that rainbow are are missing or are being absorbed. Mm -hmm. But um, essentially we're taking measurements of the star and we have to calibrate them against something to make sure that we can um, see a difference in the motion. I think maybe one way to explain it would be like you going outside and taking a picture of the sky. Mm
4: -hmm. And,
0: uh, you know, you have to have, how would you know the clouds are moving? Well, you could take one picture and then you take another picture later, but you have to reference it against that first picture you've taken. Mm So it's sort of like you have to get a really, really great reference and then compare the star's uh, image or the spectrum of it each time. Wow, that's fascinating. Who, and, and someone just thought that up, right? Well, it's been, you know what, so the thing is we are literally, we have to borrow from this famous statement, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. Sure. And literally that technique of how to measure um, stars moving, it has been developed over decades decades and decades and decades, and all people have been doing is trying to make it more and more precise. So before they could measure things at like a th- hundreds and or a thousand kilometers per second, and now they get down to like meters per second or even better. Mm. So the trick with all these measurements
2: has been to just make them more and more and more precise. And just like computers, where, you know, when computers or big screen TVs first came on the market, they were tens of thousands of dollars, and now they're a couple hundred dollars. I would imagine the increasing power of computing is making the search... Uh, more manageable?
0: Totally. And in fact, for that problem, there were a lot of um, details I obviously skipped, but to make that, you know, to get your reference image and to be able to do enough detail, yes, computers actually help make it possible. Wow. Uh, and then, uh,
2: now explain to us
0: the transit. Yes, good, we're on the same, we call it, you know what we do? We say we're on the same wavelength, because I was just <laughs> to That's one it. of my favorite Van Morrison records, <laughs> wavelength. So we're on the same wavelength here. So the transit is a little easier to explain, but it's when... Um, when, first of all, all stars we see, we just see the point, a dot. We call it a point source. Like when you look at the sky, you just see a dot. We never see it like our sun. Our sun we can see the beautiful pictures of where it's resolved spatially. And what we see for the transit method is we're watching the brightness of that star as a function of time. Like taking an image of that star, a picture, like every you know, few seconds or every few minutes. And when a planet goes in front of the star, if there's just a chance alignment and you're lucky that a planet is there, that starlight drops by a tiny, tiny amount, maybe 1%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe a fraction of a percent, depending on the size of the planet compared to the size of the star. So I just want you to imagine as the planet goes in front of the star, that dot of light, it drops in brightness. You couldn't see it with your eye. But if you have a very sensitive detector, you would the detector will register a change. And then when the planet finishes crossing the star from your line of sight, the star will revert back to its normal brightness, and it will just continue to be the same brightness. And as that planet goes around the star, every time it goes around, it goes in front of the star and causes that small brightness change. So what you're looking for is, for instance, if
2: every seven minutes or every three weeks it dips the exact amount that's the same, you can surmise that it's not anything but a planet hitting that mark every time, right?
0: Well, we skipped a few details here. So you will see something happen, but you won't be 100% sure it's a planet. It could be a lot of other things. It could be um, just a problem with your detector. It could be another star. It could be a binary star. And so You know, I had this joke once that sometimes the ones that are really hard to figure out whether it's a planet or something else, 10,000 people hours for some of them. (laughs) So there's a lot of extra work that has to be done to figure out what's really going on. So it's not that easy. But at the end of the day, you can usually tell what's happening.
1: Wow. After at the end of the 10,000 people hours.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that was for an extreme case. There's (laughs) a lot of different ways to work through the details. But yes, nothing's so easy. You know, it just sounds easy when here I am after a decade of work by, or decade or decades of work by many people.
2: Right, so now we're on this precipice. We we, we, we have the techniques to maybe find these things. What What is your day-to-day work? And can you explain some of the, the, uh, the different telescopes that we have up in the air and the ones that are coming that are going to help refine this search so that we can hopefully, I mean, are we gonna be able to answer in our lifetime? Are we ever gonna be able to see a picture of another planet which we think has intelligent life on it. Do you think that'll happen?
0: That's a huge question. You know, if we are so well, super... at least
1: life. Maybe not intelligent, but yeah. at least life. I don't know if
2: there's intelligent life here.
1: Let
0: me, let me mull that one over in the background for a second, but I first wanted to answer your question about what telescopes we use because I just want to convey to you that the field of exoplanet searches in, of for them and characterization of the ones we know about, like what are they made of, what's in their atmosphere. This is a huge field right now. It's You would not believe... numbers of young people who are going to be astronomers or physicists who are working in this field such that I bet almost any telescope you or the listeners could think of is being used for exoplanets, like the Hubble Space Telescope. That is used for exoplanets quite often. We look at planets to look at their atmospheres and try to see gases in the atmospheres like water and other things. People have networks of telescopes that are essentially that you buy like a really expensive, really nice telescope, put an even more expensive camera on it, and look for transiting planets in in uh, not like quite your backyard, but if you lived in Arizona, you know you could do it there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So really, any telescope you can think of is being used wow. Um, wow. for a variety of different things for exoplanets. So people are thinking hard about the ways to do it now. So things are happening at many levels, and pretty much my favorite project I'm involved with right now it's what we call a mission concept study. So we're not out there building anything yet, but we're figuring out how to go ahead and try to find the true Earth twins because out of all the planets. There are just so many types of planets. I mean, we wouldn't even have time to go through them. We, people like to call it the planet zoo. Like if you go to the <laughs> zoo, there's a lot of different types of animals, and they're so different from each other. And if you know how as a child, if you go to the zoo, there's no way you would have known about some of those animals. And that's how it is with planets. But the ones we really care about are the ones like Earth that are out there that we haven't found yet. Earths are too small and too faint, too low mass for us to really find true copies of yet. And we're looking for those because we think
2: that that's the highest percentage of Uh, possibility for life?
0: Well, you know, I really hate to say it like this. I don't want to say we look at, I don't want to say we're looking for Earth because we're stupid, (laughs) but um, we're fighting in a big way. I have to admit, we're all kind of like, it's not like we're in high school because we're not, but people get into these fights about what type of planet could have life. What should we be looking for? And people are arguing about this in a huge way. Someone come, I know because my own team comes up with a theory, we should look for this and other people get upset with it. But ultimately everybody, no one will disagree that earth is a good thing to look for.
1: I would love to be a fly on the
0: wall. For those fights? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I yeah. mean, hopefully
1: I can understand at least half of it. But yeah, I would love to be a fly well, on the wall. A
0: lot of them are by email and they play out at conferences. And, you know, sometimes I feel like it's just another version of high school, but maybe <laughs> it's so like good. show business. Martin well, has
2: the greatest quote about show business. He said, show business is high school with money.
0: Yeah, well, I guess it just shows it's human nature, right? And we're all (laughs) trying to do our thing. So that's why we're looking for Earths, because Earth is the only planet we know with life. Mm
4: -hmm. We Mm -hmm. feel like
0: it's a safe bet. But I'm always pushing to say, look, you know, in our lifetime, you you guys want to find life, you want to know us to find life. We can't be so narrow-minded, because we're not going to have a million or those billions of stars to study. Right now, we can only study our very nearest neighbors, our very nearest star neighbors, and they're actually not that near. They're actually pretty far away. So we need to be open-minded, because we don't want to miss... You know, we don't want to miss it because we didn't know what we were looking for. So we focus on Earth because Earth has life and we understand Earth. We know what it is we're looking for. Um, But we're trying to be a little more open-minded and include other planets also. And by
2: searching close to Earth, if we do find something, then we can dig deeper and maybe find out more than if we're looking at something that's 15, you know, 12 billion light years away.
0: Pretty much. And here we usually use numbers like tens of light years is better than a thousand light years away. Because, you know, the brighter it is, the better. We have a more technical term. We like to say photons are our are, are, are currency. You know, like money's always good. For us, more photons are good.
2: Is <laughs> I'm going to totally break that out the next time
0: I'm, uh, I'm trying to impress someone at a party. Photons are our currency. Photons are
2: my currency, man.
0: So um, it's about signal, right? Like imagine you, you're trying to take a picture and the light is really low. Does this happen to you? Like I use my iPhone and it's not that great of a camera, but the flash isn't that great either. So if the light is low, it really sucks. I can't get a great picture. But if the light is bright, it's great. Uh-huh. That's really the same thing. You get more information if you have more light. And it's the same with the stars that are far away in the planets. So we want the ones that are closer primarily for that reason.
2: That makes sense. So you might as well look where you get good information and take your chances there. And with today's
1: technology and all the advances that are being made, and are there any new devices that you're looking forward to using that may be in the works right now that may be able to help you to define what you're looking for and what's out there?
0: Well, yes, and we'll get back to my favorite concept in a minute here. But there's one other reason we want to work for the n- nearby stars, and that is uh, we don't always like to say this out loud though because it's a bit out there. But you can whisper. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, we really do hope, now I'm getting much further ahead than what I'm going to be able to do in my lifetime, or that you or others will be able to hear about, and that is we really hope that someday our descendants, far from now, will actually find a way to themselves travel to those nearest planets around the nearest stars. And in that case, it really makes a huge difference, you know, if you're a few light years or tens of light years compared to thousands or, you know, right. hundreds of thousands of light years. So we believe we want to just map, make a map of the nearest planets around the nearest stars... And people can use it for whatever they want, for looking for life, for legacy for the future, or what have you. That would be so cool. See, sometimes
1: yeah. I think I was born too late, but in this conversation, I think I was born too early.
0: You might you might see it that way. I mean, we're doing the best we can. We're all trying to live as long as possible. <laughs> and stuff like that. Let me so. let me
2: just to derail you for one second, let me ask you a personal question. If someone came to you tomorrow and said, Hey, we're gonna stick you on a rocket and we're going to send you to Mars, you'll probably be safe, but um, we, we we
0: we, you're not coming back. You know, for would me, per- for me personally, I would not go. I'm not interested in space travel myself. But I do know that there's well, you know already there's so many people who want to do that, like the people who've signed up for Mars One. Mm-hmm. People will mm-hmm. sign up for Mars One and other things. But let me relay a related que- a related comment to you. Is when I give a talk to an audience, you know, that has a variety of ages, especially like in a college setting. I'll actually talk something similar about that, but I'll mention our nearest star system, Alpha Centauri. And I'll say, imagine it's the future. And some people today believe that in the future, we'll know how to travel at one-tenth the speed of light. And if Alpha Centauri is forty is four light years away, traveling at a tenth the speed of light, it would take you 40, four zero, 40 years to get there. <sighs> imagine you had a way to travel for 40 years, and let's forget about speeding up and slowing down, which themselves would take a long time. And I say, is there anyone in the audience here and by the way, you know what the right age for this is? It's in your early 20s because you're old enough to hopefully be mature enough to make that type of decision. But by the time you get to the star system 40 years later, you'll have plenty of time ahead of you. So I say, well, who would go? And then you get a show of hands, eager people raising their hand. I would go if I could. And then I'm like, oops, I forgot to mention it's a one-way trip. <laughs> oh. Who would go? Uh, if we could and go together,
2: I, I would go. Uh huh. Just well, imagine all the cool stuff you'd see out the window on the trip.
1: Well, yeah. you know me. And for me, it's all about comfort. How comfortable is this flight gonna be? Are we gonna be able to, you know, sleep comfortably? I don't know. What about the food? How's the food in there?
0: No, 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 no. These, no, no. This is not. This is just sort of the desire to travel. People don't even worry about that level of detail. I'd say, well, it's a one-way trip. Who would go? And you know what? The same show of hands. They still raise their hand, eager and enthusiastic. What percentage
2: of your audiences typically want to go?
0: When it's a one-way trip, you might want to say, what's the percentage of the people in that right age category? Okay. Um, so typically, in an audience that was one to a few hundred, you'd get maybe 20, sh- 20 hands raised. Wow, wow! It's enough. It's enough to know that it Good. it Good. gets motivation out there to make it happen. Yeah. So I want to return to one more thing, and that is what I think is our best short term way to find these to find uh, planets like Earth around stars like our sun. And it's really a cool concept. We call it the starshade. And what the starshade is, it's a light blocking technique. Which you developed, which- correct? Um, actually, you know what? I did not develop it personally. For some reason, I get all the credit for it, but that's only because I'm currently, presently leading a team of people who is um, putting together the sort of latest and greatest on this thing. Okay. okay. So it wasn't developed by me, but you know, the crazy thing was it was first mentioned in 1980s, in the before the Hubble Space Telescope launch, by a French physical, a French uh, physicist, and he actually got the shape of this the starshade, he and the distances and everything. Um, really well. So if you wanted to give credit it would have to be that person. So the specially shaped screen, it's just like if you take your hand and stretch it out and block out the light if there's a light in your room. Mm -hmm. Essentially that's what we want to do. We just want to put a screen far from a telescope just like your hand is away from your eye where your eyes like the telescope and your hand is like the screen and block out the starlight so we can see planets that are around that star that would normally be hidden because of the light and the glare of the star. That seems now,
2: like such a low-tech solution to such a high-tech problem.
0: Well, in principle, it's low-tech. In practice, it's quite complex because unlike that light that you're blocking with your hand, the sun, our, a star like our sun, would be 10 billion times brighter than the planet. So you have to block out the light to that many decimal places, to so mm. many decimal places. So it has to be so precise because of any starlight at all. Like if you block a light with your hand, you'll see there's lots of light leaking around your hand. You can't have any leakage of that starlight. It has to be blocked literally perfectly. And so what happened was the people who understand optics, um, they made a very, very specially shaped screen. I have to back up and give you an analogy. If you were to put a circular or a square screen, it wouldn't work at all because light diffracts around the edges of a circle or a square. And the analogy we give is it's like dropping a pebble in a pond. You drop a pebble in a pond and you get those ripples.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, The thing is light behaves like a wave and if you have a star, imagine the starlight really far away and it hits a circular screen, it's like dropping a pebble in a pond. But instead of getting water waves, you get light waves. And what would register at your telescope are actually rings. Just like those waves are like rings, you get rings of light. And the problem is those rings of light are so bright, they're much brighter than the planet you're looking for. So people have developed a very special shape. And this shape, the analogy with dropping the pebble in the pond, it would be equivalent to dropping a pebble in a pond, and instead of getting the waves, the ripples... You know what? It would be so perfectly still all around that pebble. And then far away from that pebble, there'd be like a crazy, chaotic, wavy pattern. Wow. So that special shape means that you don't get those ripples of light, just like you wouldn't get. the. Imagine how weird that would be, dropping a pebble in a pond and not seeing the ripples. See nothing. And, and that this
2: physical shape yes. is going to be put up on a telescope in space?
0: Well, this physical, just like your arm has to be far from your eye, that specially shaped screen has to be made very specially. Like, and the 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 design ends up being like shaped like a flower with petals. Yeah. So they like call the flower power for, for fun, and they sometimes call it flower power. This screen would be so far from the telescope, literally tens of thousands of kilometers away from the telescope, and the screen itself would be tens of meters in diameter, so like thirty meters in diameter, flying tens of thousands of kilometers away from a telescope. Wow. So it doesn't sound so like simplistic anymore. So it's no. boring. Very simple idea, but the implementation is actually quite complicated.
2: What do you think the time frame is? Once, once uh, I, I'd like to hear about Tess and and that project. But what's the time frame from today, 2014, until we have a photograph of an Earth-like planet?
0: Well, a photograph of a planet. We won't have a beautiful image of Earth like the Apollo images of Earth. So when we say photograph, we'll just see what we call, it was called by Carl Sagan, a pale blue dot. So we'll mm-hmm. see like a point of light, that's a pale blue dot. We won't see like continents or oceans or anything like that, just a pale blue dot. And it dep- it's all about money, you know, just like everything else, right? <laughs> you can take your own favorite project and if you have enough money, then it's it's just a matter of time. But if you don't have money, it's never going to happen. So we think that if we, the study that we're doing, in fact, we were told, um, what can you do for $1 billion? if you would start the mission in 2017, that means you'd finish your technology development, start building in 2017, and launch five years later mm-hmm. for a five-year mission. So we could do the math. This is a test, guys, for you two,
2: <laughs> to see if you're on the Well, I know the original Star Trek was a yeah. five-year mission, so I think you're on the right track with that. <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> so if we put all those numbers together, and I'd have, if we put all those numbers, so if we start in 2017, and let's say if we could launch five years later, 2022, and a few years after that, so, you know, you could say a decade from now, if we had a billion dollars, a decade from now, uh, we have a great shot at getting the first image of Earth. But that image, remember, image of another Earth. But remember, that image is just a dot.
2: And, and then once you start finding these planets, or you maybe you'll do this now, how does SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, integrate with what you were doing? I would think that you guys, maybe you're out finding these likely Earth-like planets. Can't we then turn these radio telescopes and listen and see if there's some noise coming from the planet that might be a sign of intelligent life, or or a, is that not possible?
0: Well, it's it's exactly what SETI is doing. In fact, already, the planets found by the Kepler space telescope, SETI's doing a sort of a very targeted listening effort. Where yeah, just like you said, if there's a planet that looks small that could be, <clears throat> you know, Earth size, SETI's listening in there. But what we're trying to do even before that stage is look at the atmospheres of the planets to try to look, me to try to look for signs of life our own planet earth you know our we breathe oxygen as humans we must have oxygen to survive and our atmosphere is filled with oxygen to 20 percent of the atmosphere by volume 20 mm-hmm. percent of our atmosphere is oxygen but did you know that without life without plants and photosynthetic bacteria we'd have no oxygen in our atmosphere and so we hope like that aliens far away are looking at us with a big space telescope and a big specially shaped star shade screen and that they see oxygen and they're like, wow, that is so amazing. Oxygen shouldn't be there because it's so reactive. Maybe there's life on that planet.
1: I think they already know we're here.
0: Well, it's, it's, hard. it's a hard thing to do. So we're hoping that first, even before we listen for intelligent life or try to find out if there's intelligent life there, we're looking for signs of photosynthesis or signs of bacteria that are creating chemicals that go in the atmosphere.
2: Is that why finding methane on Mars is such a big deal? Because methane is a byproduct of life as we know it here on Earth?
0: Exactly. Life is a byproduct of, methane is a byproduct of life here on earth. Now methane can also be produced just naturally. Uh, but so that's actually a bit of a problem. And you know, we're not even sure we really see methane on Mars. So there's a lot of issues there, but it's exactly the same thing. Exactly.
2: Wow. What a fascinating
0: job you have. Do you like it? I do. I love my job. I was born for this job.
1: (laughs) And with all these things pointing up, and, and looking for planets and looking for stuff. Have you ever, I mean, how do you feel about um, aliens visiting us? And how do you feel about other, um, have you ever seen movement in the sky? Have you ever, what, how, how do you feel about all these photos and all these videos that are coming up with um, evidence of lights in the
0: sky? And You know, I just want to say I'm so glad you asked me that question. Because I love being able to say on the record... For all those hundreds of thousands of listeners, that I do not believe aliens have ever visited Earth, oh. I do not believe any alien aircraft have ever visited Earth. I know, I know that um, I take it instead as a way that this huge enthusiasm that people all across the world want to believe. We all want to believe that they're out there, but I have no hard evidence from my own viewpoint that they have ever visited Earth. And the reason I'm doing my search is because you know we don't know. You know, the whole thing about aliens is it's the vast distances in space. It's so hard to travel. Mm-hmm. We have no idea if we'll find intelligent life or if we'll ever make contact with them. But what we can do, we know, we, and we've already started on the kind of baby steps to understanding. We have found planets that are the same size as Earth. We believe in the future we can find planets that are like Earth. We can find planets with signs of microbial life. You know what I mean? So we're mm-hmm. still setting the stage for understanding how common intelligent life could be. But first, we have to know if there are planets like Earth and if there is any type of life at all.
1: Yeah. Well, just because we can't travel to them doesn't mean they can't travel to us. Um, How do you what do you um, how do you account for the lights in the sky for? (laughs) I mean, millions of people around the world have seen these crazy things happening. And now with this technology, we have them on video. What about the little light on top of Jerusalem that all of a sudden went and got out of the the way? And a lot of people videotape that
0: there's a reason it's called UFO, unidentified flying object. And in science, if we have something that's unidentified, it doesn't mean you assign it to alien life. You know, I mean, there's a lot out there. It would take people, a lot of people, a lot of time to sort through all the issues of what is what and what is, you know, what can be explained some way, what can be explained another way. And I'd have to give up my entire career if I wanted to pursue (laughs) trying to explain every last thing, unfortunately.
2: Which would be horrible because I think what you're doing is (laughs) fantastic. And I think if that day comes when there's some sort of, uh, connection between our civilization and uh, some off-planet civilization, I, it, I think it'd be the greatest day in the history of humanity. And I think it, it would change. I, I think it could bring peace to the earth because I think it would help people see themselves as earthlings first, as opposed to Palestinians or Israelis or whatever. It, it, it really changes, could really change the focus. And obviously it would be just a fantastic day. I, I hope I'm alive to see it.
0: Well, I'm so thrilled about your enthusiasm. It's awesome. <laughs> <off.
2: laughs> and we were thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Professor. If people want to follow your career and your discoveries and what you're doing and help support you, uh, what's the best way to do that? Is there a website or, or can we take your class
1: online? or? Do you have a Twitter account? Ooh, I, I do there.
0: have a Twitter account and they can friend me on Facebook or follow me on Facebook. They can take a look at my professional website and things like that.
2: And that's, uh, is it sarasager.com?
0: It is, uh, it's funny. You're going to laugh when I tell you what it is, but Seager Exoplanets, all one word, dot um, MIT dot EDU. But they can just Google my name and exoplanets and they'll find it eventually.
2: Yes, they will. Uh, thank you so much for spending your time with us today on, on your snow day and uh, lifting our eyes off the horizon into what hopefully will be uh, a really cool future for everybody.
0: Thanks so much for having me today. You would have to be really, really smart to be able to work with her. I mean, you know, i, I like that
2: yes you would, absolutely. However, the the concepts that she's talking about, you don't have to be a genius to think of them. You mm-hmm. know, the idea of— Well,
1: she also dumped it down for us. She well, also was able to explain to, it to because us. Because
2: we're, uh, we're not literally <laughs> rocket scientists like she is. But the concept of the light dimming when something passes in front of the star— mm-hmm. That, that's something that could come to somebody in the shower or if you're thinking about it.
1: Or if you were Tesla in a prior, previous right. life. Right, or,
2: or being able to analyze the off-gassing of a planet or or looking at the light. The, the, the true high-powered genius mojo of it is figuring out how to do it, mm-hmm. how to physically actually do the numbers and calibrate and and, and make sense of it. Conceptually, it's clever, and in practice, that's, I think, where the genius comes in. And it uh, sounds like she's got a very exciting job, very uh, cool. And I think she should be one of the people that gets to go up on the space thing first.
1: I agree with you. I think she... Well, she doesn't want to. I know. I don't get that.
2: How could she be looking, staring at planets all day long and not want to because go into space? Because she knows what your
1: body can go through if something goes wrong.
2: Yeah, but, well, would you want to go? I mean, we, we talked about it a little bit. If, if they came to us today and said, all right, listen... You can get on this thing, and you're going to fly for 40 years, and you're going to land at Alpha Centauri, and we think you'll be if able if to I get could. out.
1: I don't know if I would want to. Can you imagine being 40 years inside a spaceship? That spaceship would have to have a hologram uh, deck.
2: Well, it's probably they'd probably put you into some sort of suspended animation, so you sleep most of the way.
1: Well, most of the way, but then you're going to be bored.
2: Well, first of all, you'll go to bed young, and you'll wake up old. old.
1: So there goes your life. I well, don't know if I want to do that. Okay. And if something goes wrong, you might, you know, you'll disappear. You'll never see your family again, first of all. Mm-hmm. Um, you you're explode out there because there's no oxygen. There's nothing. You'll you just disintegrate. I don't want to feel what it feels like to disintegrate.
2: Well, I don't think you feel it. But th- that, that's, that's the question. Is the, the allure of space travel worth all that risk and worth all that hardship? Some people are going to say yes because at some point, just like Neil Armstrong was the first man to walk on the moon someone is going to be the first person to volunteer for that trip and be gone and never come back. And hopefully, you know, we'll hear from them. Yes,
1: but but human beings are cocky. If something goes wrong because they get too comfortable, oh, it'll work, it'll work. Look at what happened to the astronauts that burned themselves inside that um, test. Apollo 1. Oh, yeah, look at that. And it happened here on Earth. Can you imagine if it happens up there?
2: But they were brave heroes who knew they were risking their life to achieve something special and something spectacular yes. for the human race
1: but human beings are cocky and greedy they could have stopped they could have uh, th- they made a lot of mistakes with that and i just don't want to be i don't want to be one of those mistakes
2: well understood i guess i'm going into space by
1: myself <laughs> bye <Bye-bye>. bye <laughs> wave to me you know why you'll send me a text
2: i'll text you from space
1: text me the pictures well
2: that wraps up our very special space travel episode we will see you here next week with our Valentine's Day show. Um, lots of tips and uh, tricks for you to have a great Valentine's Day. Um, if you have to celebrate it, uh, as I've said before on the show,
1: we'll find anti-Valentine's Day. It's, yeah, it's kind of a too.
2: scam, sham holiday that forces you to be romantic on someone else's calendar. I think you should do that every single day. Oh woman, be quiet! I'm talking.
3: Make me a sandwich. <laughs>
2: Uh, so that's next week. Until then,
1: I am Marcia Carlo. And I'm Yenny Alvarez. And
2: we'll see
4: you
1: on a fork on the road.
3: Faceship relationship